0: and get 10% off your plan.
2: Hi, everyone. So glad you could join us for another episode of Adweek's Most Powerful Woman in Sports. I'm Lisa Granitstein, and it's here where the world's greatest marketers, media pros, athletes, and coaches share their remarkable career journeys and how they achieve peak performance. Today, we'll be speaking with WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelberg. We'll talk to Kathy about leadership lessons learned from different stops along the way. Kathy joined the WNBA in 2019 as the league's first commissioner after spending much of her career at Deloitte where she was its CEO. Kathy is charged with bolstering visibility for the sport of women's basketball, empowering its players and enhancing fan engagement. She also is captain of Lehigh University's women's basketball and lacrosse teams. And now let's dive in. Kathy, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Oh, my pleasure. Great background. I love it. Love <laughs> I'm in that. my office, so, you know. Yeah. Is that your jersey?
1: Yeah, that's my jersey that Lehigh gave me. I was number 12. So yeah, I was the point guard.
2: Oh, that's amazing. So I want to talk to you a little. Let's start right from the beginning. Um, Where did you grow up and how did you get into basketball and sports in general?
1: Yes, I grew up outside of Philadelphia in southern New Jersey. And so um, my father, little known fact about me, my father was drafted into the NBA in 1957 He played for Saint Joseph's University under uh, Dr. Jack Ramsey. went on he, uh, Dr. Jack went on to be a Naismith Hall of Fame coach. So, you might say I had a little DNA, basketball DNA, in me. Um, and obviously, grew up as a Title IX. I mean, I I grew up Title IX is going to um, celebrate its 50 years next year. Um, so, 1972. I was growing up playing organized sports at, at right about then, and um, you know, really just uh, had five brothers um, and, wow. two, and two sisters. But it was the three older brothers. I got thrown out in the backyard to play every sport you can imagine, from street hockey, wiffle ball, soccer, basketball, and yeah, we we had a, lots of kids and lots of chaos.
2: Wow, that's amazing. And how did you, um, you actually spent quite some time at Deloitte, you built your career there. Uh, Did you always want to be on the in the business side or early on? Were you thinking about sports? Or did that come later?
1: Oh, never thought about sports. Never in a million years thought I'd be the commissioner of a major sports league. But, you know, I I was um, at Lehigh, you know, I was a very good student in high school. But then when you go to college and everybody was a really good student and it becomes competitive, just like Mm -hmm. sports is. So playing two sports in college, both uh, basketball and lacrosse, as you mentioned, Lisa. And then really just um, someone told me about something in business that intrigued me. It said, like, there's this thing called accounting and you know, you're getting it, like there's two things. It's the language of business and you'll get a job. And my parents really liked that you'll get a job. Okay. And I really liked it's the language of business. And and I found out many years later, probably two decades later, that the person who said it was the language of business was Warren Buffett. <laughs> so wow. I, followed, I followed some good advice.
2: Definitely. And what were some of the lessons you, you learned at Deloitte in terms of what worked and what didn't work so well? And becoming a leader?
1: Yeah, I'd say, you know, one of the things that's kind of funny coming out after 33 years, so my whole career at Deloitte uh, here to the WNBA is, you know, pretty quickly I learned that, you know, there's not a big difference between sports and business because sports is big business mm-hmm. and big business is about relationships. So everything I did at Deloitte was about building relationships with clients, with our people. And, and sports is all about building relationships. And the stakeholders are a bit different though, Lisa, because you yep. have Owner. So first I went from 100,000 employees at Deloitte to 144 players. And then you have owners of the teams, you know, who independently own the team. The lead doesn't own the teams. Mm-hmm. And then you have obviously the media, you have referees, you have fans. So I go to I do a tour of all of our cities and I meet with the fans. And that's always really interesting. Wow. Um, and so but I think definitely from Deloitte, I learned so much about um, crisis management because I was around in business at the SNL crisis back in the late 80s, and then Y2K and Enron imploding, and then the financial crisis of 07, 08, and now obviously coming into the league to the the global pandemic and a racial crisis. So- you might say I had some good background in dealing with crisis and scenario planning was such an important part of it. And I'll never forget my team. As soon as we hit the pandemic, March of 2020, I was like, we've got to do scenario planning because for a league of our size and scale to be out of the sports landscape for 20 months, which it would what it would have been if we didn't have a season last summer, would have been existential. So I'm like, we got to do scenario planning in arena, not in arena, in one place, regional. How are we going to do this? How long could the season be? How much will we pay the players? And people were like, scenario what? And so I realized how blessed I was to have this background. Like, yeah, we're going to put five scenarios. We're going to take them to the owners. We're going to see how much it all costs to test players every day. And we ended up with 92 days in a bubble in Florida at IMG Mm -hmm. Academy. And, you know, could not be a better platform for the players coming off George Floyd and Jacob Blake to express their kind of, you know, social justice platform. We stood up our social justice council that is still doing really important work in the community today. So I'd say thank goodness for my background at Deloitte on doing all of that and, and really just recognizing sports isn't as different as everyone thinks it is.
2: Well, what what was it that drew you to the WNBA?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question because obviously I grew up with sports and a big yeah. family, but um, I was kind of ending at Deloitte. You have a term as CEO. I was ending my term and it was kind of like, okay, I could go do a bunch of things and I was actually so for those listening, like if you're really confused at different points of your career now, I'm 33 years into mine um, and I'm like, gosh, I have no idea really what I want to do. But I actually wrote three things on a piece of paper that I wanted out of my second act, let's call it. I wanted, um, you know, something different something with a broad women's leadership platform because i spent most of my career you know myself climbing the ladder and also Mm. advocating for other women so broad women's leadership platform and the third thing was i wanted something i had a passion for i actually thought it might take me into healthcare because i had worked in the pharmaceutical life sciences sector deloitte Mm. or it would take me to a college or university or a big not-for-profit and lead that and then this job came along and i said something different check (laughs) Broad <laughs> women's leadership platform, double check, and something out of passion for triple check. So um, it was just a it was a good match, and there uh, I knew the league was in need of a multi dimensional transformation. I wanted a challenge. I didn't want something easy. Again, I had no idea six months in we'd hit a pandemic and everything that happened, yeah. but. But you know that's what attracted me—that it met the kind of these three simple things I wrote down because I really didn't know what I wanted to do next. So I'm very honest about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm impressed. You know, we we forget it's the time frame is all such a blur. But you were really only there six months before. Yeah, everything. And during
1: that six months, we negotiated a new collective bargaining agreement—an eight-year deal. You know, uh, that was very progressive and very player first and. You know, so I can talk a little bit about that strategy because I, you know, I didn't know anybody in sports before I came into the league.
2: Now, you know, everybody. Well, I want to I do want to talk about that. Um, But first, what I'm curious about is. When you walked into the WNBA, what what did you find there? What did you what were some of the things you had to address? And that was probably one of them. Um and where where are things now? And then we could we could definitely break it down by, you know, team expansion and a fan growth, pay equity yeah. and all that. It's you want to dig in.
1: Four days in, I just retired from Deloitte, four days in, they said you're going on a plane to Las Vegas. And the first meeting you're going to is a collective bargaining meeting. And I'm like, yeah, you have to remember, I didn't know one owner. I didn't know one player. I didn't know the labor relations committee, the lawyers. But anyway, (laughs) but I knew kind of business. Um, And so, so, but what I did, and this is like so many leaders miss this, I think sometimes, is I just sat there and listened. Like, I couldn't act like I knew everything. And I had been prepped a day before, but- Mm -hmm. An hour or whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, it was listening. And as I listened, I said, God, I've been involved in a lot of contract negotiations, but and having been a college athlete, but never probably never good enough to play WNBA wasn't around when I graduated mm. from college. But, you know, like I want what they want, you know? So, right. um, but we need to build an economic model, not just in the WNBA, but in women's sports to support all the things we want to give the players. So, So we went pretty bold over the ensuing six months. um, Announced in January of 2020, again a progressive collective bargaining agreement, and then the hard work of transforming the league started. Um, And it's like, okay, we need a new economic model. We need to bring in new sponsors. We need new media partners. We need better deals. We need people to see supporting the WNBA is good for their business. We have to build Mm -hmm. a narrative about that. So, you know, Lisa, when I say a multi-dimensional transformation, I really mean it. It's everything we're doing and it's people, it's process, it's, um, it's the ecosystem. So, so, But one of the first things I did, as I said, like, let's get a very simple strategy, um, play, three prongs play, yeah. that I could talk to anybody about, the, all the stakeholders, anybody in our ecosystem. So one was you know, player first, we have mm-hmm. to build trust with the player. So I always say, like, do some small things of symbolic value to build trust. When you become a new leader in an organization especially when you when you're in a brand new organization to you but even when you're in a new role within an existing organization find out what the friction is with your employee base and do some small things to fix some of them to the extent you can and it's cost effective to do so yeah things and then so player first so i knew players don't trust us they had opted out of the prior collective bargaining agreement so player first and then stakeholder success, that meant the owners too. The owners have put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this league, but all of our stakeholders. And then fan engagement and fan experience. We made it very hard to be a fan in the WNBA, of the WNBA. Yeah. So that was the three, three-pronged strategy. And then that sat on a foundation called the brand, which was very strong. We had just launched the orange hoodie and the new logo, logo woman very strong brand the game the, mm-hmm. i went to my first game in new york because that's where i lived and i'm like the game is really exciting and strong and then the organization which needs a, needed a total transformation and then the ecosystem a lot we don't control like how do you value a patch on a uniform a placement on a court a media rights fee um how mm-hmm. do advertisers play into supporting women's sports in the wnba so that's the ecosystem. And, and a lot about how sports betting, what's an NFT? I didn't know what an NFT was, a non-fungible token. <laughs> when I came into the league. Um, so a lot to learn for me, but also a lot to transform. And when we hit the crisis, the pandemic, I said, you know, the one thing I knew from my prior life that is in the middle of a crisis, the decisions you make, you'll be talking about for a decade, plus or minus, whether they worked out or didn't. Right. And Although all of your weaknesses are amplified in a crisis, it's also a chance to fix them and actually mm-hmm. people start to notice. So, so that was the strategy. Um, we delivered that season in our bubble. And then this past season, the most watched season in you know, 15 years, um, we have 1.6 million people watch a game in August that was on wow. ABC. Because when we're on ABC, we draw higher than when we're on ESPN, mm-hmm. ESPN, a great partner. Uh, but in the Disney family, ABC, because again, mm-hmm. our fan data, we're doing a lot of fan data analysis, I'm a very data driven person. And we skew younger, more diverse, and we skew more women as a percentage than the men's league. So what what happens when you have that fan base, they're not watching the different channels that maybe they're watching men's sports, but they're watching ABC and CBS mm-hmm. and on Prime Video, we signed a streaming deal with last summer. So. You know, those are all the things you kind of have to assess um, yeah. and transform. And so we're off to the races and, and I couldn't be more proud. And, and it's all the players. When I say players and amplifying their platforms, this is what it's all about. And and they're just, you know, they're just so talented in multi dimensional ways, not just on the board.
2: Right. It really it really does seem and, and it's interesting. You mentioned how sports is is very much like business. Business is like sports and And making sure the players or the employees are are happy and well cared for is so important and that and you see in other leagues now you know the women's soccer is going through its growing pains, and that is something they're addressing now so again, just you know having that foundation as you know the players are the foundation, you make players happy and you build out um Have they been helpful with engaging with the fans? Has that made your job easier in that regard as well?
1: Yeah. Now, unfortunately, since I've been the commissioner, we had a season without fans in a bubble. Yeah. And this season up until the Olympic break, so first half of the season, limited or no fans in most cities that we play in. And then, you know, by the end of the season, I mean, two sellouts for game three and four in Chicago. And then game game one and two, 12 and 14,000 in Phoenix. Amazing. I mean, just amazing to pull in where maybe we had an average of six or 7,000. So I think people are starting to be allies, advocates for women's sports, for the game. I think a rising tide lifts all boats. So, you know, again, on, on soccer, you know, I'd love to. You know, see them thrive. I think we're going from survive to thrive in the WNBA 25th season, double any you know, like the longest-standing professional sports women's sports league in the U.S. and double any other. So we need all of women's sports to thrive, especially team sports. So individual athlete sports are a little easier to market one big, you know, Serena Williams or a golfer. Team sports are much more difficult. So it is about the players. It is about them interacting with fans, but. our players are so active in their communities that you know i I don't even have to ask like that's what they do that's in their dna um they're really socially conscious conscious and community minded and now it's you know how do we get the fans to come watch them in and sit in seats and watch a game and we're like you know we're just 120 minutes so it's i call it the greatest 120 minutes in sports it's not some four-hour ordeal Right. Very affordable for families. Um, we've got lots of dads and daughters that come. We have a very diverse fan base. Um, but we need more fans. We need more media coverage. Yeah. Um, and so we're, that, that's, that's what we're doing. Right
0: hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. Use code ADweek for ten percent off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to ViralGrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.
2: and you're you're also uh, working with a, a couple of major brands on uh, WNBA Changemaker. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? And and what's that been like getting getting people like or people companies like Nike and Google on board?
1: Yeah, so in Google we just signed this summer. And these were to find companies, like-minded companies around diversity, equity, inclusion, who we know are supporting supportive of women in their workforce. And now it's how do we get them to help us with the statistic that less than one percent of all corporate sponsorships go to women's sports. So I came into the league. I did not know that. I should have figured it out, but obviously I was focused on a different career at the time and raising two kids. But you know, less than 1% of also the first thing I asked as a former accountant, CPA, finance person was, what's the denominator? You know, so if we wanted to move that 1% to 10%, to 20%, 30%, how hard would it be? Well, the denominator is enormous because sports is big business, as I said. So, mm-hmm. so, um, so we established kind of an elite category of supporters who are really going to kind of put their money where their values were around supporting women and women in sports. And we called it WNBA Changemakers. These people are actually changing the world for us. They're helping us fund higher player pay, player benefits, helping us do a lot. We stood up a new special competition this year called the Commissioner's Cup. We now have a presenting sponsor for that. So we were able to bring in an inaugural um, Makers: AT&T, Nike, and Deloitte. We've added Google. We're going to add another one soon. So we're really excited about the platform. Um, these are like-minded companies um, yeah. that you know, get together for a round table and DE and I and share best practices and how they can support the women of the WNBA. So I'm really proud that we launched this platform, that it's doing really well. Um, mm-hmm. But we other great partnership, like we signed Dick Sporting Goods this year with Lauren Hobart having, you know, risen to the CEO role yeah. there. And just really just great that, um, you know, in their holiday catalog, if you look at the front page of the holiday catalog, there's not a basketball in there. It's a WNBA basketball. And that like changes. So yep. Little girls now can see a WNBA basketball, not just a, a college or, or NBA basketball. So it's it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And we'll send a new ball and Nike new uniforms for our 25th season. We just signed wow. Big Face and, and Legal Zoom and Dapper Labs and people are getting it. Like they're yep. getting it. We've got to change that numerator in that one percent.
2: And and are you finding it that people are getting it because there are w- more women in leadership roles?
1: Well, I think that's part of it, but also I think if you look at a, a consumer brand, mm-hmm. um, if eighty percent of every consumer purchasing decision in the U.S. is made or influenced by a woman, like why wouldn't you want to sponsor the WNBA if right. they have more women fans? So we have to do a better job. Like we have thirty-one million fans with engage engage with us over the course of a year. And who are they? What is the data? How can we say? So whenever I go to a potential sponsor, I say, like, how can we help your business? Because I'm pretty sure the WNBA can plug and play somewhere in their business. Because mm-hmm. you know everybody's trying to get to that younger millennial and that digital native, that Gen Zer, who's coming into the workforce, starting to make money, wants to spend money, is much more diverse than when I came into the workforce in 1986. So. So you have to have the right narrative and you plug it into helping their business. Like, what's your biggest? I never talk about the WNBA at first. I go, what's your biggest business challenges? And they start to talk and then you say, oh, okay, here's how the WNBA can help that.
2: So for somebody, some woman out there or or guy who wants to get into the front office at at a league, what would you say, what would be the best way to go about it?
1: yeah well first we have a huge diversity and hiring initiative for our front office positions coaching uh, we just had our uh report issued our uh, tides report on uh, racial and diversity and a plus for the WNBA. i'm very proud of that but again we work really hard at. It. everyone says well mm-hmm. of course you're a women's no, no no we work really hard at the front office um, at the back office even at the league office so yeah. i mean again the 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 stakeholders and, and the organization is much wider and broader than just the players from that perspective. So we want to make sure that in coaching, in general managers, in team presidents, over half of our team presidents are women. Um, and and we're just like I'm so proud of our owners and our teams for stepping up and really focusing on making sure that we have a diverse set of um of employees working at the league too, behind these amazing players. Cause we all know we're a, a league of 80% women of color yeah. and we've got to have our, our ranks, you know, reflect that. So we do at the league and we do, you know, at the teams and, and we're making progress. We still have work to do, but also, I mean, we, um, you know, we just added um, a couple of head coaches in just the last year, three black women, women of color who are amazing, former WNBA players, by the way, all Uh three of them. Uh, And so that's really cool too, to see, you know, because the league isn't, isn't 75 years or a hundred years old or 105, really seeing the pipeline of former players in coaching ranks, both by the way, at the college level and the pro level, including at the NBA with Swin Cash and Becky Hammond and, Teresa Weatherspoon and others. So, I mean, it's, it's really cool to watch, you know, um, the evolution, I think of women and women of color in the coaching ranks.
2: Right. No, I think that's fantastic that you're able to take this, this pool of talent and help grow them within the business and within the league. Um, I, I can keep going, but I know you have a day job. And, uh, so we're going to, uh, move over to takeaways. But uh I wanna thank you for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed speaking to you. Uh, but I'm gonna let's let's go to your takeaways. I'm sure there's some really good nuggets in there.
1: Yeah, and these are probably all analogies to when I played uh college basketball. But you know, one of the things was like greatness starts with fundamentals and it applies in business too, so no matter what business you're in. And it was really this concept of and i kind of learned this from coach muffet mcgraw who's now a Naismith hall of fame coach she was my coach for four years went on to great success at notre dame and you know she used to say like you have to be your best like in practice and and now how i process that is like be your best in your ordinary moments because you'll be great in the extraordinary ones and that meant like you're on the foul line at the end of the game it's the fourth quarter you're down one and you know if you practice those foul shots when you're exhausted in practice your muscle memory is going to kick in and you're going to make, you know, either the winning shot or the winning foul shot. So, so again, I always love that be your best in your ordinary moments, because then you'll be great in the extraordinary ones. So that's number one. Number two is um, everyone has a role to play. Now, this is easy for me because I was a point guard at college. I didn't care about how many points I scored. I, I cared and reveled in an assist. So find the center on your team, find the, the shooting guard, find the forward who's going to score a lot. And, and find those in your organization and, and and kind of meld the talents. It's like an orchestra and, you know, see your teams, your talent and capabilities and build a development culture because everyone does have a role to play. And I guess the last takeaway, Lisa, is um, one that I'm really passionate about, especially around women for women, um, because I see a confidence gap is shoot when you are open again a Sports Analogy. Um, because there's no doubt and I've failed many times in my career but because I was an athlete I think I picked myself up because I lost games but fear fear of failure is definitely the number one I don't know who said it number one impediment to success and I think it was Wayne Gretzky that said no one shoots 100% but you'll miss 100% of the shots you don't take so just last point you know balance risk and opportunity um, you know, don't fear fail failure find organizations that you know help you innovate help you fail pick yourself up and Uh, And take the shot, which means raise your hand and build your capabilities, because that's how you build a career. That's how you build a passion in your career. Um, And, you know, at least that's my best advice of what worked for me.
2: Well, Kathy, thank you. These are really inspiring takeaways, and I'm certainly going to be adhering to them myself. I want to thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to Adweek's Most Powerful Woman in Sports, part of the Adweek Podcast Network and ACAST Creator Network. This podcast was produced by Al Matarino, executive produced by Chris Aarons, and edited by Lane McGibney at Boutwell Studios. You can listen and subscribe to all Adweek's podcasts by visiting adweek.com podcasts. Stay updated on all things Adweek Podcast Network by following us on Twitter at Adweek Podcasts. And if you have a question or suggestion for the show, send us an email at podcastadweek.com. At
0: hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content, so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to ViralGrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.